Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. There is no The cartoon character Garfield the Cat once said, I'm not overweight, I'm under tall. (laughs) Welcome to Christian Questions, I'm Rick, and this certainly is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 992nd broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it's time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, website messages, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, chat board, everything else. Uh, So let's get started. Jonathan, what is the question for today? Well, Rick, the question is, are we sure that sin is really sinful? And our theme text is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. So, the question, are we sure that sin is really sinful? And my question is, what has happened to us? We live in an age where ego and emotion are more important than virtue and values. An age where personal preference outweighs personal worth, and I want it now trumps integrity. We live in an age where absolutes aren't, unless we decide they fit into our personal plan, and standards are only something to customize and remodel to our own personal satisfaction. Ours is an age where the ancient principles of sin and objective morality are being relegated to the trash heap of history. So what are we supposed to do? Should we go along with the flow of thoughts and emotions that are reshaping our social structure? Should we abandon what is considered to be the old and worn-out moral thinking of the past and embrace the new and vibrant personally-based principles of the present? Those are big wow. questions. Wow, Rick, this is loaded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It this is, is going to be quite the conversation. It is. It is loaded. And folks, look, it's always our objective with each subject. We choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant, practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite, try to find their true meaning, and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. So, Jonathan, as we get started, the question again, are we sure that sin is really sinful? It's about ethics, it's about morality, and and how do you figure all of that out? Before we get started, though, I want to just take a quick moment and acknowledge an email that we got from someone who called themselves anonymous and uh, sent us, Jonathan, a very personal, heartfelt email. I And I, it was just incredibly moving to read it. You, you read it. I did. 
And I just want to say to Anonymous, because they did not give us a way to contact them back, and they talked about some pretty serious struggles in their life, and I would love to personally be able to have a conversation with you about these things. If you're listening, let us know some contact information if you would like to do that, and I would love to personally uh, follow up and, and, again, have a conversation by way of encouragement. So if Anonymous is listening, that message is for you. So, Jonathan, let's get started and look at the basic biblical definition of sin. What is sin according to the Bible? Not according to what we like to think, but according to the Bible. Let's start with the Old Testament. Well, Rick, it means an offense, sometimes habitual sinfulness, and its penalty, occasion, sacrifice, or expiation. Also, concretely, an offender. So the word for sin, the primary word for sin, one of the primary words, you know, an offense, just like we would we would think. And, and sometimes that word is used for its expiation, like an offering for sin, the same word is used. There's another Old Testament primary word for sin. What does that mean? And Rick, that means to miss, hence figuratively and generally, to sin. By inference, to forfeit, lack, expiate, repent, uh, lead astray and condemn. So, a lot of words that say essentially the same thing. Sin is mm-hmm. bad. Okay, yes. sin is off the mark. Sin is not what it, things are supposed to be. When we sin, we're doing or saying or acting or thinking in a way that is not in accordance with the way things should be. That's the Old Testament, and you know we're gonna we're gonna take a few minutes on definitions, Jonathan, because the definitions. Our question is: Are we sure that sin is really sinful? You can't be sure if sin is sinful unless you know what sin is. That's right. So the New Testament uses fewer words to get to the point. What what does sin mean in the New Testament? Well, Rick, this is very interesting. It means to miss the mark. Okay, it's really simple, to miss the mark. So if you picture a a target with Mm -hmm. the circles and the little bullseye, and you're you're throwing a dart at that that at that target. If you miss the bullseye, you've missed the mark. You've sinned. Right. So even if you got close, it's a sin. Yeah. Now that sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> it's like, oh man, you know what? 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 Do you, what can you do with that? But see, this is important because we're talking about God. We're talking about God's perspective, and we're also talking about the ability to have our sins put in the right perspective. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that use the New Testament word or words for sin. The first scripture will be Matthew eighteen twenty-one. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? So if we look at that and we replace the, uh, the word where it says, how often shall my brother sin against me? How often shall my brother miss the mark against me? In other words, say something to me that's not appropriate or not right on target or, or you know, hurtful or something of the, to that nature. So it's broad. It's very, very, very broad-based. Matthew 26, 28, another use of the word for sin. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So there you have Jesus explaining that as broad as we've described sin as being, his blood was there to remit, to take away sins. And that's pretty comforting. Oh, that is for sure. How thankful we are. Now, the only individual that walked this earth Jesus never missed the mark, right? Right. And that ends up being really important. 
Yeah. Be- because in our discussion about ethics and how it all works, we've got to come back to that example, and we're going to be focusing on that frequently. There's another word used for sin in the New Testament, and it's translated offense. What does that word mean? And then let's go to a scripture with it. Well, Rick, it means a side slip, a lapse, or deviation. That is unintentional error or willful transgression. So I like the idea of a side slip. In other words, you're, you're moving along the right path and perhaps you accidentally slip off. That's still a sin. It's just a little different than, you know, something intentional. But they're all under this big, huge category of sin. Great scripture uh, using that word to describe sin is Romans 5.15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For it, through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So not as the offense, the side slip or the deviation or the transgression of one, so is the free gift. So again, whether it's a side slip or it's missing the mark, whether it's intentional or it's unintentional, the Bottom line is, Jesus covers it. And that's like you said, there's only one man who ever walked the earth and didn't fall. And it's comforting to know that he did that, and then he gave us his life as a ransom to protect us from all of the sins of our lives. We can never repay him for, for doing that for us. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. So, so the love of God through Jesus cancels sin. So we've looked at defining sin, and it's really being off base, off track. That love of God is what the New Testament labels, the Greek word is agape love. Akabe love, depends on how you pronounce it. Uh, And that's love in its highest form. Curiously, that very kind of love was the principle behind the founding of something called situation ethics. So we're going to get into that in a moment, but Jonathan, just a quick word about uh, folks who might want to get involved in the conversation with us. That's right. Don't forget, simply go to christianquestions.com and click listen live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world, and we may even include your comments on air. So if you want to get involved in the conversation, listen live on christianquestions.com. Go to the chat room and uh, you know have at it, and we'll see if, uh, you know, if the comments you know, fit into our conversation, if we can get them in. So, Jonathan, situation ethics. Now, I've always used framed it as situational ethics, Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, I changed it to situation ethics because I'm trying to abide by the individual who actually introduced the idea of situation ethics back in a book called Situation Ethics, The New Morality in 1966. That man was Joseph Fletcher. Uh, He was an American professor who founded the theory of situation ethics in the 60s and was a pioneer in the field of bioethics. And again, he wrote the book called Situation Ethics, The New Morality. So what is or what are situation ethics? How do they work and what are they based on? And to be honest with you, I've always looked at situational ethics. See, I said it the wrong way again. See, (laughs) I've always looked at situation ethics as, you know, you're sort of making things up as you go. You know, you, you get into a situation and you don't like the way it's going and you decide to do something that's in your best interest because that's the way to get out of it, whether it's right or wrong. I've always looked at that as situation ethics. This actually goes a little bit deeper, and I was really surprised, and I want to really work on following what the founder of situation ethics 
said it was. So let's kind of get an introduction into situation ethics. We're going to a YouTube video from Peter Barron, Situation Ethics Explained. Uh, so let's just listen to his introduction here. We're going to talk about situation ethics, a theory that Joseph Fletcher came up with in the 1960s. That's the era, if you remember, of free love. Love is all you need, said the Beatles. And Fletcher argues there is only one norm, one supreme norm, which is agape love. And agape love is love of a certain sort. It means sacrificial or commitment love. And it's the most often used word in the New Testament of the Bible for love. And it is, in Greek philosophy, the love which means commitment for the stranger. Love for the stranger. And Fletcher says we need to live by that sort of, admittedly, demanding type of love. And he says that it's typified by four principles, four working principles, he calls them. And we're going to get into those four principles in a moment. But Jonathan, when I heard that, I literally took a breath and had to play it again. Because, again, my view of situation ethics and what the, the, the founder said it was based on was totally different. And that's that Greek word, agape love, that selfless love, giving to others and not expecting anything in return. Right. And, and, and I love the way he, this, this man described it as love for the stranger. So it really is saying, okay, situation ethics is based in this highest demanding kind of love. And it demands of you, the one giving. So it really got my attention. And I thought, wow, I got to look into this a whole lot more and, and sort of figure things out. Now, I found some things out that were pretty surprising. We'll get into that in the next, in the next segment. But it gives you a sense that, okay, so this is founded on something profound, something big, and something we have talked about many times in, in, in previous podcasts as very beautiful and very driving and very inspirational for us. That's right. Okay, so... Agape love. That's what situation ethics is based on. Let's remember that. And that was from Joseph Fletcher, the founder of this theory. So here's the thing. Sin brought the human race out of favor with God and under the rule of another. And this is important to acknowledge if you're a Christian, because if we're talking about ethics and sin, and is sin really sin all the time, or can sin not be sin sometimes, but sin other times, and how do you decide, and how do you come to ethical uh, grounding on these things— we need to acknowledge that sin brought the human race out of God's favor and under the rule of someone else. And, and that's verified for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And Rick, this, this verse simply you know, makes us aware that Satan is that prince of this world and he usurped God's authority and we're living under his control right, right now. We're living under his control right now, not directly under God's uh, moving hands. It's under God's overruling, but not under God's hands. It's under Satan's control. That's where sin abounds. That's where we abide. That's the way it all works. Okay, now, Remember, situation ethics, something I've always looked upon with negative thoughts and feelings, 
is based in agape love. So let's get into these four principles a little bit. Let's try and understand what the four principles are. We're going to take a really brief look at them. Again, we're going to a, a, another um, YouTube video called The Four Working Principles of Situation Ethics. The central motif of situation ethics is to act in a loving way towards others. We are to always seek to do the best thing, which in this case is the most loving. The Christian is neighbor-centered first and last. Love is for people, not for principles. In his book, Joseph Fletcher set out how his situation ethics works by way of six propositions. These are pragmatism, relativism, positivism, and personalism. Okay, now he messed up because he talked about these six things and he only named four because he confused himself. He was actually talking about the four working principles, but he said the six... Uh, whatever they were. So, but anyway, they are positivism, pragmatism, personalism, and relativism. What does all that mean? Next segment, we're going to touch on those a little bit. So Jonathan, though, remember there was a key point. Love is for people, not for principles. Yeah, he mentioned that. Yeah, and I think you got to think about that and listen to that a couple of times and let that sink in because here is where we have to start to really pay attention to something that comes across as such a big and powerful and wonderful thing at the outset. So as we begin to wrap, wrap this up, you know, situation ethics has a far deeper basis than I ever thought. Me too, and it begs the question... Has situation ethics been working world-changing? How clearly has the power of selfless love manifested? Join our conversation by messaging us through the Christian Questions app. Download it now in your app store. Just search Christian Questions, then give us your thoughts on this and future episodes. Now, let's take a CQ deep dive. Thinking about situation ethics from the standpoint of its origin is probably a complete surprise to most of us because we generally see situation ethics through the eyes of making things up as we go. Now, let's look at how the whole thing has come together for us in this present age of enlightenment. Let's take a few minutes and say, okay, how does it actually work? And let's ask the question, is there value to situation ethics? And Jonathan, to be honest with you, my answer to that question always before this would have been, no, there isn't. No, there isn't. So the question of the question is, did Rick change his mind? That's right. All right, we'll find out. Okay, we'll find <laughs> out as we go through this. So, um, so again, but it impressed me that the principle behind it is agape love. Now let's get, let's go back to the four working principles of situation ethics and let the gentleman explain to us what they are. And he does it briefly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it gives you a sense of some, some of the working parts, if you will, of, of situation ethics. So let's listen to this. Situation ethics is pragmatic because it is practical. It is concerned with doing good things for people. Situation ethics is relative because it responds to each moment uniquely, but always with the intent to act in the most loving manner. Positivism is about choice. We are not obliged to follow any creed or set of commandments, but we choose to act in a loving manner because this is the right thing to do. Finally, situation ethics is personal because it focuses on people and their needs 
and dismisses blind obedience to religious teachings and commandments. And again, you have that little line at the end that says it dismisses blind obedience to religious teaching and commandments. And Jonathan, that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I hear that. <laughs> and again, they say it's practical. It responds uniquely. It's it's choice-based because you're trying to choose what's right for people involved, and it's very, very personal. And you look at those things, and you say, yeah, those all sound good. They all have sound like they've got merit. So, you know, why would you have a problem? Well, when you say it doesn't have blind adherence to something bigger, that creates a reaction in me personally. Now, folks, I don't know if it creates that reaction in you. Let's see about appropriateness for what is actually right here. So, Here's the thing, Jonathan, we live in, and I've mentioned this a couple of times already, we live in an age of what many people consider an age of enlightenment. Here's a problem. The big problem with our enlightenment today in this world is it's polluted, okay? Paul, in the following scriptures, in the following context, is emphasizing his care and responsibility for the Corinthians as they were experiencing other earthly influences other earthly enlightenment that was drawing them away from the true gospel. When we look at the enlightenment of the world, our, 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 our basis of looking at it is saying, you know, there's always going to be something wrong with it because it's based in sin. And remember, sin is missing the mark, even by a little bit. So let's look at the Apostle Paul in dealing with the enlightenment in the early church that was coming from other places, what did he say? What did he do about it? Second Corinthians 11, 12 to 15. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So, so, so the apostle is saying, I am standing up against some who are bringing you, quote, enlightenment, unquote, because they are misguiding you uh, according to what the true gospel is and what the true gospel stands for and what I, the apostle Paul, stand for. So he's saying very specifically, very plainly, I am telling you, he's not asking them, he's not reasoning with them, he's telling them that there are standards that are higher, these people aren't following them, I'm standing in the way. Let, let's continue, verse 14 and 15 of uh, 2 Corinthians 11. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So it's an interesting correlation. He says these are false prophets and so forth. And then he says, look, you know, it's not surprising because Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. And that's why I say enlightenment in this age, in this world, is polluted. Why? Who's the ruler of this world? Satan is. So if Satan is the ruler of this world, then all light essentially filters through Satan, then what are you going to get? <laughs> you're going to get a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to get polluted light. That's what you're going to get. It's not going to be pure. And when we look at ethics and we look at is sin really sin, because that's the, the, the main question of today's podcast, that's what we have to understand, is we want to see it 
as it really is, not as it seems to be, not as everybody wants it to be, but as it really is. So we've established, hopefully clearly, Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, Jonathan, we're going to ask several recurrent, this, this, this question we're going to ask again and again. As the ruler of this world, how does Satan operate? So this question is going to help us define sin, and it's going to help us to define the, our handling of ethics. So what's the first point on how Satan operates as ruler of this world? Well, Rick, he uses our feelings about things to override our faith. Feelings and faith are two entirely different things. And if we mix the two up, we get into big trouble. So faith is something that requires following. Feelings are something that require managing. And that's how you tell the difference between the two. And we've got to really be clear that faith and feelings are different. And Rick, you were going to bring out uh, a comment on Joseph Fletcher. Oh, the, yes, I was. The important point you were going to... Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm glad, glad you reminded me because I, um, like I told you before, I, I write it down and then I skip my own notes. It's like, you know, <laughs> who wrote that? That thing is in my way. Get out of there. <laughs> but, you know, Joseph Fletcher, you know, he, he talked about uh, situation ethics being founded in agape love, and it's entirely impressive. Uh, but, Jonathan, I'm, I'm going to mention a point then we'll talk about Seeker Rewind because the point is actually in the, the, the bonus material. He also stood for, he also said in, in, in print, he said, you know, people with Down syndrome children, um, he said, you know, it's, it's perfectly fine for them to put them away. And he meant put them away in two different ways. And he spells it out, either put them away in an institution where they'll never be seen or take their life. Doesn't matter. It's better that way. And I thought, I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You write this book and you talk about the power of agape, selfless love, servant love, love for, for, the, for the stranger, and yet you are willing to take a disadvantaged child and end their life? And, and Jonathan, I blew up you know, in my, when I had this great respect for the theory. It was like, wait a minute, what are you doing? And, the, and you know what the answer in my own mind was? I don't know this to be true, but the man's playing God. And that's where the whole thing comes crashing down. Well, you can read it for yourself. Uh, go to the bonus material in Seek Your Rewind at ChristianQuestions.com. Hit the newsletter sign-up tab and register now. Uh, the Rewind is full of graphics and illustrations, and it's, it's fantastic for a subject like this so that you can really understand what is being said in the sound bites and how we prove... Um, that God's way is the best way. So, Seeker Rewind, the, the full edition, sign up for it. It's a free service. If you don't like it, you can, you can uh, unsubscribe with the click of a button. Give it a try if you don't already subscribe to it. It really is a wonderful service. Okay, so, Jonathan, Satan uses our feelings about things to override our faith, and we got to watch out for that. So, what happens when we seek to live by how we feel? Okay, um, we're going to read some scriptures from Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, and they are the context of the theme scripture, which said, you know, that Jesus did not see fit to acknowledge, those who didn't acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. How did he get to that statement? Well, Romans 1, 20 to 25 sort of gets us there. This is what happens when we seek to live by how we feel, and it has everything to do with ethics, and it has everything to do with sin being sinful all the time. Go ahead. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even now they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So... The apostle is basically saying, look, the world has seen the miracles of creation and has chosen to ignore them and chosen to explain them away in this way and that way. And, you know, it's funny how science displays the utter beauty and intricacy of nature, but cannot bring itself to say it's designed. And to me, that is just one of the one of the silliest things I've ever heard. When you see something so in- intricate that we spend years and years and years trying to figure out how it works, and then we spend generations trying to figure out what we tried to figure out, <laughs> you know, and, and and to say that's not designed is just beyond my 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 comprehension. But but what it says is God saw the trend and let it happen. Okay, and He allowed their foolish hearts to become darkened. And how are they becoming darkened? Who rules this world? Satan. Okay, so any light that humanity has in this darkened state will be tainted with the scourge of sin because we are under Satan's rule, and that's how it works. So let's continue with Romans 1. Let's go to verses 22 to 25 now. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Jonathan's situation ethics exchanges the truth of God for a lie. It says the moment is bigger than principles. That's what it says, and that's the lie that just does not fit. So, and this, and this is, is framed as idolatry. Idolatry is the epitome of darkness masquerading as light. Darkness likes more darkness. It's just the way darkness works. It just it feeds it, off itself, right, Rick. Right, and darkness is not light, even though sometimes we interpret it as such. So let's get to now the next um, the next soundbite. Uh, this is now different source. Uh, this is uh, uh, YouTube video number eight in a series on situation ethics, uh, and it's called compatibility with Christianity. And I think this is an interesting point saying, okay, are situation ethics and Christianity actually compatible? Can they actually work together? So let, let's go to this uh, soundbite and just hear the beginning of this, uh, this perspective. To question whether or not Fletcher's situation ethics is compatible with Christianity is still an important consideration, though. Remember, not all Christians think alike, so as some will love the idea of such an ethic, others will utterly reject it. You must be able to consider why this might be the case. In favour of situation ethics being compatible with Christianity is the fact that Jesus set an example that seems to be in keeping with Fletcher's descriptive principles. When he healed on the Sabbath, or harvested grain on the Sabbath, he was directly challenging the legalism of the Pharisees and taking a relativistic approach. Okay, so he's challenging the legalism of the Pharisees, he's taking a relativistic approach, and therefore the conclusion is, well, Jesus must have been a proponent 
you know, holding up the idea of situation ethics. So we're going to have to come back around to that because that's an interesting theory. Okay, but uh, there's an answer. But Jonathan, at this moment, uh, we want to go to. Um, okay, um, hang on. Uh, so let, let's get started with this. Was Jesus relativistic? Did he actually say, well, you know, it's really not that way? Jonathan, you're nodding your head vigorously. No, he was not. <laughs> okay. How do we know he wasn't relativistic? Well, let's look at how Jesus explained to us how to apply agape love. Because he tells us very plainly, very simply, let's go to Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So here Jesus is telling us plainly, love God first and foremost above all, and then love your neighbor as yourself in the context of loving God. That's not relativism. That's no. saying God is first, God is foremost, agape love is based on godly instruction for living. It's not relativistic. Uh, Jonathan, I want to go to Trish. She has got a comment from someone on the app. Go ahead, Trish. Okay, this is an interesting um, question, Rick. It says... Hold oh. on. It oh. I just disappeared. Hold okay, on. it disappeared. While she's looking okay, for... Okay, she's got it back. Let's go. Okay, where is being a transgender being a sin if all we are changing is our bodies and not our temple, which is our heart? An interesting question. Um, I just wanted to remind the person that sent this that the email address they sent is not correct. So if they could send back, um, write us again so that we could have the right email, that would be helpful. And also that we're going to be doing a program on this very topic in January. Yeah. So that might be helpful as well. Okay. So it's a good question. You know, where is being transgender sin? I will not get into that in any kind of detail at this point, Jonathan, because it just, it, it warrants too much time. It warrants too much attention. January 8th, though. We will be doing a podcast, and the, the, the question for that podcast is, is my gender your business? So hang on, wait for that, because we are going to take a 90-minute podcast and discuss that in great, great detail. But I appreciate the question coming up here in this context of ethics and finding the right thing, the, the, the foundationally right things to do. So, Jonathan, I want to quickly go to uh, the next soundbite. Uh, this was from Compatibility with Christianity. Again, talking about Jesus and his potential relativistic approach to things. He mixed with members of society that were considered to be undesirable, like tax collectors and prostitutes, regardless of what others said. His inflammatory statements clearly set out to attack legalism and adopted a more personal approach to faith and ethics, offering forgiveness for Jesus' teaching was in keeping with this idea too. In his parables, such as the Good Samaritan and his condemnation of the rich man in the parable who let Lazarus starve to death at his gates, he clearly takes the agapaic route of compassion for those who are in need. In his Sermon on the Mount, he teaches not to judge others for their sins and to love enemies. 
These are clearly compatible with the six fundamental propositions which advocate that agape is not the same as liking someone and that we must be prepared to break rules that do not serve love. Here Jesus seems to be advocating the relativist approach to ethics rather than the legalist. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> he's not. And again, you may say it seems to be because he's stepping outside of the lines that the Pharisees have driven, uh, 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 written, okay, drawn is what I was trying to say. But he's not stepping outside the lines that God has drawn. Quickly, John 12, 44 to 46. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Jesus was a direct reflection of the light of God. That's not relativistic, not in any way, shape, matter, or form. It is clear. It is concise. It is focused entirely on something of much higher principle. And that's the big difference, and we're going to have to unfold that, Jonathan. Let's get to an ethical truth based on some of the things we talked about in this segment. Well, Rick, our highest and best example of universal ethics acted in accordance with God's law. And that's Jesus. He always acted in accordance with principle, which was higher than the preferences of any given moment. So it's all about being law-abiding, but there are times when we shouldn't be, or are there? So, you're asking, are there exceptions to the rule? Is there such a thing as breaking a law for a higher purpose? How would we know we are right? As we try to stay on track with research, sometimes you go down unexpected roads. That's part of education, debates, and differing opinions. You just can't take everyone at their word, and oftentimes you have to consider the other side of the story. That's why we're always asking our listeners to give their opinions on the questions we're answering. Message us at ChristianQuestions.com or through the Christian Questions app. Speaking of the other side, time to go in reverse with a CQ Contradiction. And Jonathan, we can all think of situations where standing for a higher good prevails. Now, having said that, this is where things always get sticky because it becomes a nearly impossible task to establish firm guidelines and principles to act in accordance with. So, let's look at a couple of examples that shed some light on the how and the why of the higher good and what we should watch out for. And Jonathan, before we get into this in, in detail, I just, I, I want to, because I, I brushed by it and I, the, the transgender question, I don't want to ignore it, but I want to just take a moment and explain. The reason I don't want to offer an answer at this point is because the answer would be far too short. And in, with a really short answer, it is too easy to misrepresent and misinterpret what it is. Okay, it's not like don't have an opinion, don't think we have a or a scriptural basis or anything. It's just that it's a very complex and deep question that we thought warranted a 90-minute discussion rather than a 30-second answer. So I'm not avoiding it. We're just putting it on the shelf until an appropriate time. And folks, I hope you understand that as we continue. So Jonathan, we're looking at breaking the law for a higher purpose is, is that is that something i mean is that relativistic or how do how do you how do you deal with that let's go back to the gentleman with the four working principles of situation ethics and he actually talks about and does a little imitating of uh, a hero of many many people for for several generations now uh, he's going to start talking about obi-wan kenobi 
So a little bit of a Star Wars uh, reference going on here. Let's listen. You know, all this brings me back to Star Wars again. Do you remember that scene when Ben Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader in a Death Star hangar? Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Darth. The scene ends with Ben giving up his life so the others may escape. Ben's sacrifice Well, that's interesting. The audio on... There it is. ...relative to the situation. He considered giving up his life to be the right thing to do at that time. It was also a choice. He was under no compulsion to do what he did. He alone made the decision to give up his life. It was also personal. It was done for his friends, not for himself. So the point, and I apologize, I don't know why the audio went out in the middle of that, but the, the point is he's, he's taking that example from the movie Star Wars and saying, well, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi did a very, very situationally ethical uh, good. He gave up his life and he, you know, he, he went through the four basic principles and said he, he fulfilled each one of those. It was personal. It was relative to the situation. You know, you don't just naturally give up your life for any, any old thing. And so he's saying, look, he was a great example of that. And he was acting out of that agape love, that highest form, that, that difficult kind of love. Interesting picture. So we're going to hold on to it. We're going to come back to it a little bit later. Okay. So Jonathan, back to our recurring question about Satan. As the ruler of this world, how does Satan operate? We talked about faith and feelings first. What's next? Well, Rick, he uses our circumstances to cause us to question our conviction. All right. Circumstances can cause conviction to come into question or to even be ignored. And we talked about that last week uh, with uh, our discussion on peer pressure. And uh, receive daily inspiration and hope. Find us at CQ Bible Podcast. Okay, so that's on Facebook, right? C- right. CQ Bible. What about on Instagram? How do you find us on Instagram? Uh, CQ Bible Podcast. Okay, what about Twitter? How do you find us on Twitter? Well, that would be CQ Bible Podcast. Are you just repeating yourself? What? I am. <laughs> <laughs> what about YouTube? How do you find us on YouTube? CQ Bible Podcast. Okay, so Jonathan, all one word, right? Right. CQ Bible Podcast, <laughs> social media, used for good. All right. And let's just take our theme uh, tagline and, and apply it here. Think about social media like you never have before. You know, we always say think about the Bible like you never have before. Let's give social media uh, a, a try for good, for something good, for something wholesome. So Satan uses our circumstances to cause us to question our convictions. Now let's talk about that in a very real, very practical way. We are going to hear a a YouTube video, parts of one from Dr. Arthur Harkins. And the title of this video really got my attention. The title of this video is Ethical Cheating. And when I read the title, again, my response was, oh, I've got to listen to this. Because how can you frame ethical cheating? So this, this, this soundbite's a little bit longer than normal, but let's listen because you've got to get the understanding of what uh, Mr. Harkins is saying and the point he's making. What is ethical cheating? Well, my goodness, it's the kind of cheating that you can justify. It's like honor among thieves in a way. And let's apply that to the academy, to the university or college environment. 
many, many students feel today, and research is showing this, that their college experience is not preparing them for the real world, or at least for the world of work. So that they're trying to do is get through their colleges as fast as they can, ideally with minimum expense and bother, and get on with their living, their so-called real-world lives. And one expression of that is that they will pull things off the internet, cut and paste and term papers. They will do a lot of things that ordinarily would be regarded as uh, unethical by faculty, for example. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe if your educational delivery system is failing you, you are best best justified moving on beyond that system and doing something that every knowledge worker already does today. And that is find every bit of information you possibly can that's relevant to a problem or an opportunity and convert that through intellectual transformation into alternative decision-making options. That was a mouthful of words at the end for saying it's okay to cheat. That's wow. what he's saying. And Jonathan, this, this this really gets my blood pressure going because he's saying, you know, okay, all of these 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 intellectual workers do this anyway. Oh, hang on, hang on, wait, wait. Of course they do. But they are not being tasked with being original. They're being tasked with creating something because they're being paid to do so. You, while you're in school, are being tasked with, here's an idea, applying your own brain to create something. And it's not legal and it's not ethical to take somebody else's writing and just pull it off the internet and cut and paste it into your paper and say here and it's okay because you the college is not doing what I think you should be doing for me Jonathan that's the biggest pile of rot I've ever seen I cannot even begin to fathom teaching young people that this is a good thing and folks this is where it gets to ethical cheating really Come on. I mean, come on. We're going <laughs> to... Sorry. <laughs> we're going to come back to Tell that. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to come back to that. And, and Jonathan, let, let's get into a story that tells us exactly the opposite. You know, the days of Daniel. Daniel has got great lessons for us, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, Daniel in the lion's den and all that. Before he was thrown into the lion's den, he had a lifetime of ethical behavior. He had a lifetime of living to higher principles. And he got into a situation under a new king, under King Darius, where he has distinguished himself. And there is a lot of resentment for those around him because the king sees him head and shoulders above everyone else. So here's what happens. And notice how Daniel behaves with such a high level of ethical behavior. It's astounding. Daniel 6, and we're, we're condensing a big story into just a couple of verses. Daniel 6, verses 3 to 5. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So Daniel's behavior was so high, so firm, so clear, so focused on doing right that they could not dig up dirt on him. 
He had such integrity, Rick. Yes, he did. There was no dirt to be found. He had universal integrity, the universal ethics of serving God and God's principles of righteousness. So they made up something. They trapped him by saying, well, we'll get him in regards to his God. We'll get the king to sign a decree that everybody has to bow down to the king and nobody can worship anybody else but the king for 30 days. We know Daniel's going to bow down to his, his, his God. And sure enough, Daniel didn't let them bother him. And he did. And so, so why did Daniel do that? Why didn't he just stop worshiping God for those 30 days? Because Daniel was bigger than the little things that these men were doing. The ethical points to consider in watching Daniel's behavior, Jonathan, there's four of them. What are they? Daniel had a personal and private habit and responsibility of worship. It was not just a habit of worship. It was his responsibility of worship. And he took it seriously and he, because he was following the law, the Jewish law. And, and it, he could not stop it because it was higher. What else? Daniel unequivocally knew God's hand was with him in miraculous ways. He had a lifetime of God showing him and delivering him and, and, and giving him wisdom. What else? Daniel's allegiance was unshaken by circumstance and he was willing to accept consequences. I truly believe that Daniel knew that the, the penalty was to be thrown to the den of lions, but he, you know what? He didn't care. God was more important than his physical life. And what's the last one? Daniel's ethics were not at all situation ethics. Rather, they were universal-based ethics. He stood for something higher. Did he break the law of the land? Yes, he did. Why? Because God was more important and God had proven himself more important to Daniel throughout his entire life. I think there's a powerful lesson of, of how to go about standing for something higher in the humility of Daniel. He didn't, he, you know, he didn't draw attention to himself ever, but he honored God always. Let's go back to uh, part eight of the situation ethics uh, soundbites from compatibility with Christianity. And again, the question coming up here, should we break God's word? In addition, St. Paul clearly teaches that love is vital. As we've seen in 1 Corinthians, love is spoken of, but also in Galatians 5.14, where he reiterates Jesus' words that you should love your neighbor as yourself, and this is the whole of the law. Having said all of this, though, situation ethics seems to reject the commands in Scripture that seem to be absolute. The Ten Commandments are a good example, since it's always been taken that these are not to be broken. In addition, the Church has a structure of authority. Within this structure, there is tradition and interpretation of Scripture which has been prayerfully considered over hundreds of years. Who are we to set this aside? It is arrogant and lazy to think that we can just ignore the work of the thousands of faithful and intelligent minds who have put together such structure of law for the benefit of humankind, just because it suits us to do so. So, you know, there's a, there's a shift here saying, look, you've got to look at the body of work of what the Bible stands for and how there are absolutes in, in, in the scriptures. And who are we to put those absolutes aside? And Jonathan, she makes a really important point there. Now, look, a lot of church... Traditions have gone off base. We're not going to get into that at this point. But what we know are the absolutes of Scripture, and God is an absolute, a God of absolutes. So we want to keep things 
in that kind of a context. You know, another quick example, Peter and the apostles standing up for something higher than the law of their day. They stood higher than the commands of the higher-ups of their day. The context here in these verses, because we're going to take a big story and, 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 and distill it way down, the context here, their preaching and healing caused an uproar among the high priests, the Sadducees, and the entire religious ruling class in Jerusalem. So the apostles, as a result, were put in prison, and they were emphatically told to stop their activities— And that night, while they're in prison, an angel comes and releases them from prison and says, go back to your activities. So, who are you going to listen to? (laughs) The angel that released you from prison miraculously and tells you to do God's work, or the people who are saying, don't do God's work? What did they do? Let's look at Acts 5, 21 to 31. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together even all the Senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But when the officer who came did not find them in the prison, but someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. (laughs) Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. They stood them before the council. So here they are. They're out preaching again. It's like, first of all, how did you get out? And secondly, why are you preaching? Should they have obeyed the religious leaders or an angel from God? Let's continue in these verses. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostle answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So the questions we have to ask here, Jonathan, are why did the apostles... Uh, not follow the the laws of the land. There's there's two very specific reasons. What's the first one? Well, Rick, the apostles followed specific directions from above. Okay, specific directions. So what we're saying is this doesn't give us just carte blanche ability to go break any law we feel like because we're going to say, well, a higher law tells me to do this or that. In both cases, with Daniel and and with the apostles, there was specific, clear instruction. And And what's the next point? The apostles' ethics were not at all situation ethics. Rather, they were universal-based ethics. Because they were based in doing the will of God. They're always based in the will of God. That's just the way it worked. So, the ethical truth, to wrap up this segment. Disobeying any law requires crystal clear evidence of godly conviction and not just feelings. Okay, Crystal clear evidence of godly conviction. Not some dream that you had. Not some feeling that you had. Crystal clear evidence of godly conviction. That, I think, Jonathan, is where we have to be really, really careful. So, stepping outside of predictable, righteous behavior is really off limits. Sure, but what about missteps? How do we know what might cause us to inadvertently walk down the situation ethics path? Every episode, we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com, through all our social media channels, and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. 
Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together. See, Jonathan, it's one thing to proclaim that we're abiding by universal ethics, but it's an entirely another thing to actually do it. Why? Because we're human, because we are sinful, and because we are emotional beings. Abiding by universal ethics depends on us knowing how to find and prove them to be true. And let me say that again. Abiding by universal ethics depends on us knowing how to find and prove them to be true. If we can't find them in Scripture, clearly, straightforward in a straightforward manner, and prove them to be true, we have no business standing for them. And I, and I really mean Good that. Good point. Good point. And that takes away the situational application of what might be what we might be trying to label as a universal ethic. See, that's the problem is sometimes we take the situation situ- set up and we say, okay, you know, it feels like I should do this. And we say, oh, you do this to stand for God. But what if it's not according to the principles of God? Because, you know, the Apostle Paul in another place told us to abide by the laws of the land in which you live. You know, give honor to the governors. That's what he said. So there is definitely thinking and, 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 and proper application that have to happen here. So, you know, with all of that, um, let's get back to Obi-Wan Kenobi for a minute, okay? <laughs> <laughs> because Obi-Wan Kenobi here, uh, remember he had sacrificed his life so his friends could be freed from the Death Star, wherever it was. I think they were on the Death Star at that point, okay? So there are questions now that come up as a result of this in relation to situation ethics. So remember, situation ethics is supposed to be based on what? Agape love. The highest form of love. So let's listen to the questions that come up in this YouTube video, The Four Working Principles of Situation Ethics. But for all that Ben might be said to have done a loving thing, did his act lead to loving consequences? Or for his friends, yes. But what about all those on the Death Star? In making sure his friends could escape, Ben's actions led to Luke coming back in his ex firing a torpedo into the Death Star's exhaust chute and blowing the whole place to smithereens which resulted in everyone on the space station being killed hmm that's not very loving oh well something to think about as I fill up the crinkle cut chips see you soon <laughs> I like that guy he's got <laughs> a good delivery but you know his point is his point is well taken okay you know he saved his friends he gave his life and all of that agape love and he destroyed all of those other people and so you say okay is it well were they all really bad well they were on uh, in a place that did bad things okay, yes I get that but were they all really bad and see that's where we have to we, we come up and we end up with all of these unanswerable questions from a human standpoint which brings me to the point that that's why following godly principles works so much better because godly principles are put in place above and beyond the human experience. So when we reach up to them, we know that all of the what-ifs and gray areas are already covered. However, in this world, it's really difficult because back to our recurring question, Satan is the ruler of this world. And as ruler of this world, how else does he operate? Well, Rick, he uses the fulfilling of our desires to bury our focus on our discipline. See, desire can kill discipline. 
And discipline requires focus. Desire just just yanks it away because it, it's full of feeling. And that brings us to another point that Satan that brings us uh, to 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 Satan's way of ruling this world. He uses our seeking of pleasure to overpower our following of principles. See, we have to understand how important it is to realize all of the disadvantages we have in the world in which we live. And desires versus discipline, pleasures versus principles, it's harder to stand for discipline and for principles. And And Rick, we we need to know our enemy. We need to know how Satan operates. And these ethical truths, I mean, you need to go to Seek Your Rewind. Have your Seek Your Rewind in front of you. Write down these ethical truths. Put them on your refrigerator so that you can see them every day. Again, go to ChristianQuestions.com, hit the newsletter sign-up tab, and register for the CQ Rewind outline. And again, it is a free service. There is absolutely no obligation attached to that, except the obligation to get something out of it, which we, we want. Well, we really can't obligate you to, but we really want you to. Okay, how's that? All right, let's get back to some scriptures here in terms of how this all works and again, the, the initial question, are we sure that sin is really sinful? Yes. Well, how do you further define it? Psalm 19, 12, and 13 helps us to do that. Who can discern his errors? Clear thou me from hidden faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be clear from great transgression. So it's pretty interesting in this scripture, and this is a scripture that's often quoted, you know, clear me, this translation says, you know, the King James says, cleanse thou me from secret faults, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. There are two sources of sin uh, within us revealed in this text. The first is hidden faults. So so Jonathan, just let's put hidden faults in perspective. Sure, Rick. This first aspect of sin is the hidden, internal sin, perhaps sins that are a part of our very nature. It's hard for us to see clearly. They are also natural to us. Perhaps these sins correlate to our desires. So these are the internal things that are really hard to detect, the hidden faults, because they're part of how our normal, regular thinking pattern goes. And that's hard to figure out, Jonathan, and it's much harder to deny when you're getting down to something that's so, so very, very personal. Okay, that's the first uh, source of sin revealed in Psalm 19, 12, and 13. The second is presumptuous sins. And the word presumptuous actually means arrogance. So what about this second aspect of sin? Uh, the second aspect of sin, uh, arrogance has to do with outward display in action, a show that would correlate to outwardly seeking pleasure. Okay, so arrogance really, I think, shows us we've got the hidden faults. That's something deep inside that nobody sees. And the arrogance is what everybody sees. And so what the scripture is saying is cleanse me from both kinds of sin. So no matter where it is in my life, I can have God's rule with me. Uh, Having said that, You know, the inward sin, the quiet sin, and the outward sin. Let's go back to ethical cheating, shall we? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, he's, he's giving justification for breaking the rules of the university. So let's listen to how this gets further justified. Although I'll admit, in some cases, cheating is not ethical. So one way to look at this is if your college is legitimate, 
in its treatment of you as a student, as a learner, as a future member of the knowledge workforce in any country, then you're going to be kind of locked into it and you're, you're going to do what it tells you. You're going, to be, you're going to be happy to be a, quote, good student. But if you perceive that you're not getting what you're paying for in college, that you are not being prepared to be competitive on a global scale with the emerging workforce of which your demographic is a part, then you may be quite differently oriented and be willing to do a lot of shortcut, uh, uh, create a lot of shortcut steps to get you out of the system with a degree as fast as possible. So, Jonathan, let's get this straight. His his definition for ethical cheating is you want to get out of there as fast as possible with a degree. If your college is not treating you according to your specifications, then do whatever it takes. Cheating is fine. So you're talking about immature minds figuring out, hey, this is not really a good school anyway. Right. So why not? I'm right. going to cheat. Right. And, you know, and, and here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a great idea. If your, your college is not feeding you according to what you want – quit stop paying them go to a different school yes i don't know i don't know why that doesn't cross anybody's oh i know why it doesn't cross your mind because it's too hard it's so much easier to say to justify they're bad i'm good i've got to apply the situation ethic to me jonathan this is as despicable as it gets to teach youth to teach young people to take shortcuts that are totally unethical and call them ethical. I cannot even imagine having that conversation with a young person. I can't, can't imagine it. So I wonder how the professors would feel if they found out all their students were cheating. You know, I, I, it's, 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 it's ridiculous to me. It's just ridiculous. Look, look, look. Let, let's get back to the scripture, you know, Psalm 19, acknowledging our passions that drive us from within and our arrogance. Okay, the passions within, the arrogance without that puts them on display gives us a foundation for fighting against situation ethics. So what we're suggesting is exactly the opposite of what this uh, Dr. Arthur Harkins is saying. We're saying, don't give in, stand up. Romans 6, 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Okay, to make you obey those hidden faults inside of you. Don't let sin exercise exercise dominion. This is exactly the opposite of what that guy was saying. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness. Okay, as instruments of wickedness. Be arrogant. If you are allowing yourself to be an instrument of wickedness, you're saying you're kind of strutting your, 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 your arrogant stuff, and that is not an appropriate thing for a Christian to do. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You've been brought from death to life. You are living on the principle of salvation being applied to your life. Jonathan, that's high. That's a high standard. And you are an instrument of righteousness. That's the discipline. Instead of the arrogance, it's discipline. Folks, we cannot go down the road that this Mr. Harkins is talking about. It is unacceptable. It is not logical. It is not clear. It is wrong. It is wrong. And you know what else? It's wrong. Yes, you read my mind. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Having said all that, uh, let's go back to, I know we're using a lot of sound bites here, but there's a lot of points that we want to sort of mix into this whole thing. Uh, Part eight of the Situation Ethics series from Compatibility with Christianity. Uh, Remember, she started taking a turn saying, well, you know what? 
Who are you to start to, to doubt what the Bible actually says with all those, those very basic, strong principles? Let's go one more time with that approach. In fact, when St. Paul wrote about love, he also wrote about other virtues or qualities too. Love may be significant, certainly, but it is not the only important quality, as Fletcher claimed. He felt that faith and hope were also vital, as were joy, peace and so on. These qualities should surely also be considered when weighing up a moral decision. A one-principle th ethical theory may be too narrow to be trustworthy. Amen. You know, it's about time we hear a voice of reason to say that, okay, love is the only thing. You know, love is the primary underlying thing, love and justice together. And, you know, Jesus, early on in the podcast, we talked about Jesus saying the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Those, that is the justice that is required to go to God, and then the love required that comes out from going to God. We have to have God as our foundation for our ethics, not how we feel, not what the situation says, not what other people say, not what, 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 what some, some, some doctor of psychology is telling you is okay. The universal ethics of standing for something high, relying on true agape love, is the framework that is built on that foundation, the foundation of God. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. You see the justice that's in there? I mean, justice just keeps pounding away. It's saying higher principle, higher principle, higher principle. God is love based on what? Higher principles. God is love based on what? Justice. God is love based on fulfilling the ransom price so it can be done correctly. That's what our ethics needs to be based on. Our ethical building is constructed with the materials of praise, reverence, and obedience for God above. Don't ever forget it, no matter what the situation is that you are facing. Another scripture, Matthew 4, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, that's what he says. Go away. Worshiping God only is all that there is. So again, Jonathan, the, the universal principle is, is, is pounded into our head scripturally. We have no choice but to abide by that universal principle. And that brings us to another ethical truth that you suggested you, you post on your refrigerator. What is it? That's right, Rick. The object and direction of our reverence and passion determines the kind of ethics we practice. So you can find out, you can figure out what kind of ethics you practice, whether they're situational ethics or whether it's universal ethics, by what is it that you truly reverence and what are you truly passionate for and towards. When you answer those two questions, you will be able to figure out what kind of ethics you have. Because if, you, you, if your reverence is for anything less than godliness and righteousness as defined by God himself, and a passion for serving him and him only, it's going to be situational, or situation ethics. It just is. That's just the way it's going to be. So, the defining characters of worship directly impact our ethical thoughts and behavior. Uh, three important points on uh, worship, Jonathan, 
three different aspects of worship and then and just give us a, a, an explanation of each. The object of your worship, what is it? What ethical approach does it lead to? All right. What is it that you are focusing on to worship and what is it bringing you to do? The reason for your worship, why is it? What ethical approach does it lead to? Okay, the object, what it is, why, and then? The methods of your worship, how is it? What ethical approach does it lead to? So the object, the reasons, and methods. What does it bring us to in terms of our ethical approach? We are not to worship anything which is not worthy of our admiration and our praise and our loyalty. And really, Jonathan, that comes down to God Almighty and His Son, Jesus because they are higher than we are. And Amen. that's how you find where to place your worship. So it's God first, God last, and God is everything in between. It absolutely is. So let's focus in. How do we positively identify and stay focused on and walk down the path of godly ethics? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. It is incredibly important to identify how to build our ethical belief system. Just as important is the responsibility to continually test the application of that belief system as we are inherently faulty when it comes to ethics. Testing can be tedious and disturbing, but it is vital to our ethical success. Just because it sounds good, Jonathan, doesn't mean that it is good. You're right, Rick. Just because it feels good doesn't mean that it is good. You're right. Just because somebody else told you it was good doesn't mean that it is good. You're right. Just because you want it to be good doesn't mean that it is good. And there's selfishness there. (laughs) (laughs) And it all comes down to situational decision-making versus being based on God Almighty, He Himself. Um, And Jonathan, our last posing of this recurring question, so as ruler of this world, how does Satan operate? What else does he do to us? Well, Rick, he uses our emotions to hide our ethics. Great. <laughs> and, and, and that's so true. Emotions cover over the power of the ethics in our lives because emotions are very, very powerful. And ethics have to be formed and learned and created into habits. Emotions just are. So it's so easy for them to override the ethics. There's, a, there's so much discipline that it takes to have ethics. Yeah, you know, and and if we don't accept that fact, then we're lost and we're going to be stuck in this. As a matter of fact, just for the sake of it, let's just go one more time to ethical cheating, Dr. Dr. Arthur Harkins. I don't know if I can take one more, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, Because I think the way he ends this is is a self-condemning statement of the theory that he is putting forward. Let's listen. So, bottom line, if you want to be an ethical student, even if you're practicing ethical cheating, you have to decide what you want from college. If you just want a degree and you're willing to cheat your way through conventionally to get that degree, you are a cheat, and there's nothing to be said for you. 
But if you are saying to yourself, my college is not really serving me, I can do better by myself or with my peers or with a, a sort of a global network of students all over the world who are working together, then you are an ethical cheater and you're trying to beat the limitations of your college in order to, f to further your future. So my bottom line is, if colleges and universities really want to serve people, students, ethical cheaters, regular students well, they're going to have to shift to a laboratory model away from a classroom model. You know, my bottom line is if colleges and universities find, quote, ethical cheaters, unquote, they should throw them out. <laughs> oh, no. Well, seriously, look, you know, what he's saying is ethically cheating is saying I did and I created and I thought this through, but in reality, I took the wisdom and thought and effort and, and, and blood, sweat and tears of several other people to give you a conclusion that I'm telling you is mine but I'm lying. It really isn't mine. How is that helping you develop? How is that helping you put the, 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 the principles of discipline in place so you can become somebody with your life? It's not. So he's basically saying cheating isn't cheating, isn't cheating if you say it's not cheating. And Jonathan, there lies the problem because that, oh, that, that reasoning always comes back and bites you and the bite is often terminal. So and look, Rick, integrity is lost. Right. And when integrity is lost, Jonathan, there is nothing left. No. There, there really isn't. There, there, there's survival. There's, there's a party here and a party there. But it all comes crashing down at some point. And there's great, great discontent in life when you don't have integrity. Remember, look, we're engaged in understanding those four steps of situation ethics and then applying that understanding to real life. And we're not going to go through those four steps again. But here's the thing, Jonathan, to follow, we're going we're gonna to shift gears a little bit and look at examples of enlightened, highest common objective thinking that were around long before our current age of enlightenment. These things that we're going to discuss were actually suggested by Mahatma Gandhi. Now, why would, be, why would we be using Mahatma Gandhi in, in this? Because he was right on these things. He was clear and focused and they are provable scripturally. And look, when somebody says something that's provable scripturally, good. I'm, 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 I'm up for it. <laughs> okay? Mahatma Gandhi had what he called seven deadly sins. Committing these sins sets us on the path of situational ethics. So, Jonathan, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, read the sin. You read the scripture that verifies it, and then we'll wrap it up with an ethical action as a result of what it says. So the first of the seven deadly sins, according to Mahatma Gandhi, is wealth without work. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So wealth without work. Really what that's telling us is you have to just be willing to take care of yourself whenever you possibly can. So the ethical action in, involved with this first of the seven deadly sins according to Mahatma Gandhi, the ethical action is always be willing to contribute and always do so when it is possible and when it is appropriate. Because there are times, Jonathan, when it's not possible. That's you, right. You know, if you if you are injured and you can no longer work, then yes, others need to help you. It's not like you're sitting there saying, "Oh, you know, I stubbed my toe, I can't work." It's, you know, if you've got a, a substantial injury or cancer or something, that's understandable. 
But if we are able, we should be willing. That's what he's saying. The ethical action is really simple. Always be willing, wherever appropriate and wherever possible, to pull your own weight. See, situation ethics will take that and say, well, you know, maybe somebody else can pull my weight for me because I don't feel like it. Or they have more than I do anyway, so they should pull harder. I mean, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? Not for a Christian. Okay, not for a Christian. That's the first of Mahatma Gandhi's seven deadly sins that are scripturally verifiable. The second is pleasure without conscience. And this will go to Ephesians 4, 19 and 20. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Okay, pleasure without conscience. The scripture basically said, look, you can't get involved in sensuality without being Christ-like. Human beings are sensual beings, and there is an appropriate place for sensuality. But it must be, for a Christian, it must be in the context of how the scriptures define it for us. In marriage. Right. You know, and, and you know, you, those two little words, in marriage, say an awful lot about scriptural guidelines. And we can talk till we're blue in the face about other situations and on and on and on, but you come back to scripture and it always comes back to that. So, look, if those are the guidelines from God Almighty, what are we supposed to do? I don't know. I think we should follow them. I don't, I, I don't understand how, why we would think anything else. And when you do, there's contentment, Rick. Yes, there is. There is. So the ethical action here, always apply God's standard of right and wrong above our own feelings in the moment. It's a matter of applying God's standard, not how I feel. God's standard, not what I want. God's standard, not what's tempting in front of me. God's standard. Third of seven deadly sins from Mahatma Gandhi is science without humanity. Let's go to James 4.17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. All right. It's interesting. Science without humanity. You know, we can, we can go down roads of science that you know, there, are, there are ethical questions that come in to play because especially biotechnology is so advanced at this point. Our science must be framed in the context of respect for humanity. Our ethical action here, I think, is simple. Respect human life as it was meant to be respected. Now, now Jonathan, how was it meant to be respected? Um, in was, a godly way. Right. It was, it was originally created in God's image. Yes. So if we're created in God's own image, we should respect it with that high of a, a level of reverence because that's God create of all the earthly creation the human being is the only one that was created in the image of God okay so we've been wealth without work pleasure without conscience science without humanity next is knowledge without character I love this one first Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 now concerning things sacrificed to idols we know that we have all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Now, there's that agape love coming out in Scripture, and it's such a different application than in the, uh, in the uh, situation ethics uh, forum, as we've noticed. Um, knowledge without character. It's, you know, knowledge is, we, ha we have such access to so much knowledge 
now that has never, ever been possible before. But if we take that knowledge and start to throw it around without character behind it, all we will end up doing is damaging ourselves and the people that we throw that knowledge at. So there's ethical action that's required when we have knowledge. And from a Christian standpoint, the ethical action for knowledge without character would be decide that all knowledge will be filtered through a godly character before use. It's one thing to have knowledge, Jonathan. It's another thing to put it into action. We must be willing to run whatever knowledge is in our head through the filter of godliness to see if applying it is actually appropriate. What would Jesus do? Perfect. Perfect. WWJD. You know, you've seen people with those wristbands. And that is such a powerfully simple statement that helps us understand knowledge with character and the power of it there. Okay, so wealth without work, pleasure without conscience, science without humanity, knowledge without character. The fifth is politics without principle. Now look, this is not a political program, so you can you know we're going to keep this at arm's length. But politics without principle, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. It's interesting. Or as governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So you see that there's that little caveat on there that says, you know, God can allow individuals to be in place to actually help hold some sort of righteousness and justice in place. Those are good things. We should support those things, even if they're imperfect. Now, here's the thing. In terms of politics and, and, and principle, and I should just say in passing that those two words don't seem to go together anymore at all. No, they don't. I don't care what side of what you're on. It just doesn't <laughs> seem to work. The ethical action for us as Christians is, and, and folks, listen to this carefully, hold the passion of politics at arm's length knowing that principles are not based in emotion. If we can get past the emotion of the different points of view and get to the principles, we can therefore have a conversation. But until you get to the principles and not past the emotion, it's all over. And it's all situation ethics, and it all blows up right in your face. The next, number six, in the seven deadly sins by, uh, suggested by Mahatma Gandhi is commerce, commerce without morality. Proverbs 20.10. Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. Okay, so the idea of commerce without morality. You can have trade, you can have an economy, you can put things in place, but if it's not built on morality, then it's going to be damaging to everybody at some point, somehow or other. And that's part of the reason we need to have universal ethics rather than situation ethics. Because situation ethics says, look, you know what? I'm selling this here. And, you know, it says, you know, the, the proverb is differing weights and differing measures. Both of them are abomin abominable to the Lord. He's saying you sell the same thing for the same price to whomever comes before you. Don't shave off of this or add to that. That's not right. Universal ethics says keep it simple, keep it straight. Keep it honest. Keep it just. The ethical action, treat all transactional experiences with equity, just as though Jesus were your business partner. I like that. Imagine <laughs> having to report at the end of the day to Jesus. Here, here's the books. What do you think? And you know he can see right through you. So how, how are you going to do business, you know? 
And the last one, Jonathan, is worship without sacrifice. And again, I think this is profound, Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship without sacrifice. Too often, we get into, and, and, and folks, hear, hear clearly on this now, we get into situation ethics within the context of Christianity when we make our Christian experience about me, about what I want, about what I can get, about what I like, about what God can do for me. Worship without sacrifice is situation ethics because it takes the focus off of God and makes me the powerful one. It's not the way it's supposed to be. By the mercies of God, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. The ethical action here is simple. Honor God with a heart of personal giving rather than with a desire of personal getting. Simple as that. It's as simple as that. So, Jonathan, those are seven deadly sins that help us understand how situation ethics can ruin us and how the universal ethics of God and righteousness can actually make us. So, last ethical truth as we're getting ready to close. Checking and testing our ethical reasoning regularly will reduce the temptation of situ situation ethics. Okay, now, now why? why? Why does checking and testing that reasoning reduce the temptation? Well, Rick, we will be constantly reminded of the overriding power of godly thinking and actions. Okay, you have to, in order to be truly ethical in your life, in my life, in our lives, we have to be constantly being reminded of the overriding power of godliness. And you can't be constantly reminded unless you do your own reminding. You know, the suggestion you made was really powerful, and it was a simple thing. Put these ethical truths on your refrigerator. Why? Because they're scripturally based, and they're ways to remind us of how important it is to live up to something, not down to what everybody else is doing. That's what this really is all about. Folks, look, obviously we're out of time. This is a big, big subject. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on it. But the bottom line is this. Situation ethics are based on situations and therefore are fallible, are false, are full of holes. Whereas godly ethics, universal ethics, are based on the solid foundation of God who is above us and righteousness. Which one would you choose? I don't know about you, but the answer to me is pretty simple. Godliness and righteousness. For Jonathan, Rick, and Christian Questions, we'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then, don't fall for situation ethics. Think about it. And folks, remember, we love hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's topics. Suggest a future topic. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. And make sure to download our app. Back again next week.